which is the, the Greek for the, the study of the last things. And um, so that's what we're looking at tonight. And um, what we're going to do is get it all that we can from Isaiah 1 through 26, and then do our best to sort it out, okay? Uh, try to figure out in what chronology or sequence um, they will happen in history. And by saying that, I'm not putting when it will happen. You get it? I'm not setting dates for anything. I'm just talking about the order of things. As I've said before, everybody that gives dates all have one thing in common. They're all wrong. Yeah, so I'm not interested in that because uh, I don't like to be wrong. <laughs> so, but before we do that, uh, before we um, try to organize things, we have to decide on something. Uh, we have to decide which method we're going to use to interpret all of the data. Now, historically, uh, people have applied two different methods of interpretation. Uh, there's the allegorical or non-literal method, and there's the literal historical grammatical method. Okay? Now, when it comes to the, the non-literal, the allegorical, uh, some challenges, uh, I, I, I'm confronted by some challenges when I try to apply that particular method. I'm going to give my reasons, and as I said at the beginning of Isaiah, I want to be very respectful when I talk about people that utilize other methods and have different positions than myself. Um, and I want to represent their position well, okay? Uh, and part of the reason is because I think it's wrong to misrepresent people and to be disrespectful, but there are a number of brothers in the church that don't hold my position, okay? And uh, some of those brothers are men that I respect more than most people in the world. You understand? So I want to represent them well. And uh, in representing them, I have read a number of allegorists <clears throat> over the years. And uh, so I'm going to use their thoughts uh, to represent their position. Does that sound fair? Okay. So <clears throat> the challenges that confront me when I, when I attempt to use this method uh, is, is like this. All of the prophecies regarding uh, the judgments of the nations okay, are interpreted literally by the allegorist, and those prophecies have been indeed fulfilled literally in history, just as the text says. Also, when the allegorist interprets the prophecies about Jesus' first coming, he interprets them literally, and indeed, they were all fulfilled literally in history, just as the text says. But when the allegorist encounters the prophecies relating to the end times, he interprets them non-literally or spiritually, or at least a good number of them. And the same allegorization is applied to those prophecies pertaining to Jesus' earthly reign. Okay, those are all taken allegorically, non-literally. Uh, in fact, the allegorist, um, I found two passages uh, just in uh, briefly looking today, uh, that they split down the middle and they interpret the first part literally and then the second part they, tr they interpret non-literally. Uh, the first half of the passage that refers to the Messiah's first coming, they interpret literally. The second half of the passage that refers to Messiah's earthly reign and second coming, they interpret non-literally. Okay? For me, I'm uncomfortable with that kind of uh, inconsistency and the change uh, that, that happens so quickly. It makes me uneasy because for on, on what grounds am I permitted or required to change the method of interpretation 
when prophecy refers to the end times and Jesus' earthly reign. Well, well, we all agree that the literal historical grammatical view should be applied to all scripture until we get to things pertaining to the end times. Um, So why would I interpret prophecy referring to Jesus' first coming, literally, as literal, but his second coming and earthly reign as non-literal? So why should I switch from one method to the other when there's nothing in the text itself, the text of scripture, that would instruct me to do that? And if the scriptures do not tell me to change the method of interpretation, who is it that assigns that methodology? And so it seems to me that the allegorical view is less exegetical and it's more theological. And and what I mean by that is that the the allegorist arrives at his conclusion because of what, not because of what the text says, because of of a theological presupposition that he has. Uh, For the allegorist, these passages do not mean what they say. Uh, They mean something else. Now that's a quote from uh, an, an allegorist. Uh, he says that the, the, the text of Scripture in these particular passages do not mean what they say. At least, they do not mean what they say plainly. Okay? And, uh, but if the text does not mean what it plainly says, how do we discover meaning? That's a great challenge. Does meaning come from the original author or does it come from the interpreter? If meaning comes from the author, then the text of Scripture must mean what the original author intended it to mean. But if meaning comes from the interpreter, the question is, which interpreter is correct? Well, I think all of us agree that meaning is found in the grammatical construction of words as they're found in a context that was provided by the author. What the author meant by what he said using the, the, the regular rules of grammar and, and, and uh, ways of communicating. The only way for us to discover that meaning and then avoid assigning our own meaning is by interpreting the text in its normal sense. So I use the literal historical grammatical method to interpret all of scripture. I don't care if it's uh, in the poetry, I don't care if it's in prophecy, uh, the narrative, historical uh, eschatology, it doesn't matter to me. I wanna interpret the text in its normal sense, the normal sense. And somebody brought up Uh, something that I've said for years, and it's this. On the day of judgment, when I stand before the Lord, and it turns out that the allegorical method was supposed to be used, and God says to me, Ben, those passages were meant to be taken non-literally, I can humbly respond and say, Lord, I simply taught what the text says. That's because that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to teach what the text says simply. So as we look at the data that's how we're going to approach it. So let's collect all the eschatological data, end times data, data, I don't care how you say it, uh, from Isaiah 1 through 26, and then we'll organize some kind of sequence. Okay, so chapter one. Now chapter one doesn't uh, provide a whole lot of information, but it does mention one thing that is essential to the end times scenario. Oh, and real quick, I meant to say, there was a lot to do today, and I didn't have any time yesterday. I haven't reviewed, so I may not make it through the whole thing, okay? And if, there's, if it's a little bumpy, um, we'll have to blame somebody, but I just, I won't take the blame. So here's what the text says, I, uh, Isaiah 1, 25 through 28. God says, I'll turn my hand against you, 
and thoroughly purge away your dross, and take away all your alloy, I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So to begin with, because God is just, Israel is going to be judged for her wicked unbelief, okay, which resulted in all kinds of immorality even to this day. But the text also says that God is going to purge their sin. He's going to restore them to, as to their former, speaking nationally, because he mentions judges and counselors, and he will redeem them spiritually. That's all in the text. Now, since the time of Isaiah, this has not happened to ethnic Israel. Okay, there was uh, somewhat of a brief revival after the Babylonian captivity, but nothing of what Isaiah predicts here. Okay? Ethnic and national Israel have walked in unbelief since the time of Christ, and according to Paul, they're currently under divine chastisement. Okay, so we're waiting for the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is an end times prophecy. And what we have is a, and, and this is how we're going to start numbering these. We have a future restoration of national Israel. That is, Israel will be a nation in the, the end times scenario. Some people say that's fulfilled now. I don't believe it is because every prophetic description of it uh, has not just Israel as a nation, but ethnic Israel as the nation believing in Christ. That makes sense? That's not Israel today. The majority of all Jews in Israel today are secular. They're, they're not even believers, not even in Judaism. They're secular, okay? And then what else is in the text is a future redemption of ethnic Israel. So two things there, the, uh, a national restoration and a future redemption of the people, okay? <clears throat> and all of this requires a trust in Christ as Messiah, okay? Uh, I think a good thing to ask in, in light of this whole thing is, what would something like that require for a nation that's currently secular to convert to Christ and become a nation, truly a nation under God? What would that require? I don't have an answer for that right now. Uh, <clears throat> so we're going to use this information of national Israel restoration and then the redemption of the people as the starting point, okay? Uh, this will just build. It'll be repeated over and over and over. Here's Isaiah 2. Uh, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the tops of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations will flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways and he will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord." So to begin with, the, the prophecy begins, verse 1, that all of this has to do with Jerusalem 
and Judah. Now, Judah as the regal tribe and Jerusalem as the, the political headquarters. Okay? Um, this can only refer to a restoration of national Israel, the text. Okay? Isaiah says that the mountain of the Lord's house, which is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem, will become the place of pilgrimage for all nations of the world. They will come and they will learn the word, okay? And they'll learn the word from the Lord, the word of the Lord. Well, do we have any record of that in history? All the nations pilgrimaging to Jerusalem to learn the word of the Lord. No, none of that. Could you imagine that, by the way? So it hasn't happened. So this is also a future thing, okay? And it's going to be centered around Messiah and the new covenant. Uh, This very similar language is used in Jeremiah 31, which is a prophecy about the new covenant. Uh, Certainly testifies to this exact conclusion. Also, in this prophecy, God judges the nations. Some are rebuked, others lay down their arms. Okay, from other passages, we know that some go to war with God, okay, but others will surrender to his terms. So at some point in the future, all the nations of the world, they're going to be judged. Okay? Some are rebuked, which implies condemnation. Others will pilgrimage to a restored national Israel that has been redeemed. So four things that we've, we've seen so far. A future restored national Israel a future redeemed ethnic Israel, the judgment of all nations, and then this global pilgrimage of all nations to Jerusalem. All of those things continue to be repeated through these chapters that we're talking about. Chapter three and four uh, are actually uh, two chapters of one prophecy. Uh, But in chapter four, for the first time, we have the introduction of the branch. Now we've already expounded on the branch, uh, if you were here for that. The branch, of course, is a reference to Christ. That's the Jewish Messiah. He's also called the root of Jesse in in similar passages. So Christ is both the creator of Jesse and he's the progeny of Jesse. In Revelation, he's called the root and offspring of David. So he's both David's creator and he's David's child. Very interesting. Um, He appears this way in Isaiah 11, 1 and verse 10. In Isaiah 60, verse 21. Uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. I can give these to you afterwards. Uh, these are just my proof texts. Uh, Jeremiah 33, 15. Zechariah 3, 8. And chapter 6, verse 12. Romans 15, 12. Revelation 5, 5. And Revelation 22, 16. So common theme uh, throughout the scriptures. So the questions regarding the branch are these. Which coming is Isaiah talking about? Christ's first coming or his second coming? And then what are the results of his coming? Or or we might say, what occurs at the time of uh, or because of his coming? Now, chapter 3 is all about the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. And chapter 4, verse 2 says, in that day, so the connection. So at the time that Judah and Jerusalem are judged, there's going to be an advent of Messiah. So this is what he says. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Escaped what? And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. 
and purge the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from the storm and rain. So just prior to the coming of the branch, there's going to be judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem. But those who escape the judgment will be called holy because the Lord will wash away their filth. It says he's going to purge Jerusalem of her guilt and bloodshed. And then the Lord, probably a reference to the branch, will make Jerusalem a refuge for his people. So again, we have a reference to a future restoration of Israel, the nation, and a future redemption of ethnic Israel. Let's keep going. Of course, we've added the branch to this whole thing. Now, chapter five has no timestamps that would place the prophecies at the end of time. Uh, chapter six is the calling and the commission of Isaiah. So nothing uh, specific to the end times. Chapter seven mentions the virgin birth uh, of Christ. Uh, does that pertain to his first coming or second coming? Okay, so you're, you're following along. Chapter eight predicts the Assyrian invasion in the seventh century BC. So that was a long time ago. Chapter nine speaks of the first and second coming of Christ. Uh, verse six refers uh, to both, while verse seven clearly refers to the second coming. This is all chapter nine. Here they are. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay. Now, Really, that passage simply just refers to Christ. It doesn't uh, change based upon his coming. Okay? It's all true of him regardless of which advent. But the, f- the following verse is more specific to the second advent. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So once all of government rests upon the shoulders of Christ, it says there will be no end to his kingdom and the peace that he administers. Now, obviously nothing like that has has happened on earth. Okay. There's very little good government on planet earth. How many guys would agree? It seems like foolishness is contagious with government officials. And there's almost no peace, uh, real peace on the earth. So The fulfillment of this prophecy is yet in the future as well. Also, and I think obviously, uh, Jesus did not sit on David's throne when he came the first time. He didn't reign over anything. He was rejected and crucified, right? Okay, and he is not currently sitting on David's throne in heaven because David's throne is not in heaven. And there's no place in scripture that suggests that David's throne is in heaven. Uh, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is a part of his Father's throne. David's throne and David's kingdom, as, as these prophecies have already been telling us, are going to be reestablished on the earth when Messiah comes. And when he does, he will rule with judgment and justice, as our text says, forevermore. 
And just as the, 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 the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke 1.32 with some extra details. Let's go there real quick. It says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So we just added another detail to the events of the end. Uh, That's the second coming and the reign of Messiah. Okay. So a question that needs answered is what role will Jesus play at his second coming in regard to what we've already listed? What role will he play in the restoration of national Israel? What role will he play in the future redemption of ethnic Israel? Now, we know that he's the savior, but how does that happen? What role will he play in the judgment of the nations? And what role is he going to play in this global pilgrimage to Jerusalem? Okay, now uh, I want to address this text real quick. This is one of the passages uh, that there's this uh, division with the, 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 the literalist and the non-literalist. Um, when the allegorist comes to this particular passage, uh, he, this is one of those ones that he switches back and forth from literal to allegorical and then back to literal within the same passage. Um, the allegorist believes that there would be a literal virgin conception based upon verse 31 and that the child should literally be named Jesus. Also, he would literally be great, that is the Messiah, and literally be called the son of the highest, according to the first part of verse 32. But the last statement in verse 32, that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, should be taken non-literally. It should be interpreted spiritually. Uh, So the method has changed even within the same sentence. Now also in verse 34, it says that Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now this statement also is to be taken to mean something other than what it says. In fact, the allegorist would have it mean something that is never said anywhere in scripture in that way. The house of Israel uh, is always, without exception, a reference to ethnic children of Jacob. But to the allegorist, this refers to the church, which is anyone, ethnic Jew or Gentile, who believes in Christ. Now, that's a change, okay? And then in verse 35 to the end, they revert back to the literal method of interpreting the text. Now, these are some questions that when I encounter that method uh, are these. Did the angel intend for his words to be taken non-literally? If so, how do you know? Who says? Okay, what did he say that would give you uh, that impression? Also, did Mary take his words non-literally? What did Mary hear? Okay, if she heard non-literally, what is said in the text that would make her think non-literally? If you accept the non-literal method of interpretation for these particular statements, why wouldn't you allegorize everything that Gabriel told Mary? If there is nothing in the text to direct you toward a non-literal interpretation, why would you apply it at all? And if you're going to apply it, why not apply it to everything? Why not just be consistent through the whole passage? Do you understand? Those are challenges that I run into. Let's go back to Isaiah. Chapter 10 refers to the judgment of Assyria, okay? And the deliverance of Jerusalem, that also is in the seventh century BC. So that's not an eschatological passage. 
Chapter 11, though, returns back to the discussion of the branch, saying that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him in verse 2, but verse 4 provides some details that definitely bring us to the time of the end. It says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Now, at Jesus' first coming, it was the wicked who slayed him. Amen? Okay. At his first advent, he came to save sinners, not to slay them. But when he comes the second time, the scriptures tell us he comes to judge the wicked. Okay. Now, following these details, something very interesting emerges about what will accompany his second coming. <clears throat> the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. How many of you guys seen that before? Where the wolf was alive. Or the lamb was <laughs> alive. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy all my mountain, my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So in reference to the advent of the branch, the, the conflict between predator and prey will end and the danger that wild animals pose to humans will cease. And then the diet of all predators will be the same as the herbivore. Now, prior to sin entering the world through Adam's rebellion, all animals enjoyed the same vegetarian diet, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 29 through 30. And there was no death before sin, which suggests that there was no conflict between man and animal or between the animals. This all changed, of course, after sin entered the world. But when Christ returns, things will revert back to the time before sin, before sin at least to some degree. It says the calf and the bear cub will play together. The bear will graze with the cow and the lion shall eat hay like an ox. Yeah. Now, that shouldn't actually surprise us too much for many animals that appear to be carnivorous are actually vegetarian. Anybody know of one? Bear, black bear. I'm from Wyoming. We have the grizzly bear and they eat people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fruit bats. Fruit bats. What about panda bears? Koala bears. Okay. Many other canine creatures are vegetarians. Okay. Now, the reason for all this is given in the text. It's this. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters as the waters cover the sea. Now remember, as Isaiah 2 prophesied, all the nations will pilgrimage to Jerusalem to learn what? The knowledge of the Lord, who teaches them. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. In that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. I'll bet they seek him in Jerusalem, where he sits on the reestablished throne of David, from where he rules over the kingdom, just as the text told us. But it won't just be the Gentiles who seek him. 
It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. We haven't had a second time yet. He will set up the banner for the nations and will establish the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Yeah. So again, we have the future restoration of national Israel, verse 13 and 14, the future redemption of ethnic Israel, verse 11 and 12, a global pilgrimage to Jerusalem, verse 10, the judgment of the nations, verse 4, the return and earthly reign of Christ on the throne of David, verse 1 through 5, and the rest of the chapter just describes it. We have peace within the animal kingdom and peace between the kingdom of man and animal, okay? At least, a, there, at least there's a, a partial description of a reversal of the curse, verse 6 through 9. Okay, we got a couple minutes. Chapter 12 uh, this is the song that Israel will sing after the Lord has done all of these things. Okay? Chapter 13 through 23, so now we're jumping way ahead, is the judgment of the nations that surround Israel. Okay? These, are, these events refer to uh, the 7th century BC, not eschatological. But there is one passage that is interesting, a reference to the Messiah, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 5. Uh, now, the passage, and we see this, I don't know what to call it, um, some kind of prophetic phenomenon, um, that in the midst of Israel's troubles, there's oftentimes this, this look forward into the distant future to encourage them about what God will do finally. In 16.5, it probably looks forward to Messiah's reign just to ensure God's people that the time is coming when he will actually fix all things, Okay. But when we get to chapter 24, we clearly move to the judgment of the nations, that is, the entire world. And it's, the, the details give us the impression that it's distant future. Okay? It says that the kingdoms of the earth will fall and they'll never rise again. That's verse 20. At that time, it says the host of the exalted ones. Okay? That's apparently a reference to Satan and his angels. They will be placed in prison. And it says that after many days, they will be punished, verse 21 through 23. And in verse 23, it says that the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. The contrast is striking there, okay? The wicked hosts fall, but the Lord rises to reign, okay? Satan and his angels will be brought low, but Christ will ascend his throne. Chapter 25 is Isaiah's uh, exaltation of God his doxology, for what he will do in the future. He says this, and in this mountain, now remember, we've, we started talking about the mountain in chapter two, and we've had it uh, mentioned two other times before now. It says, in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines, on the lees. Do you see it? The global pilgrimage to Jerusalem will apparently have a pilgrim's feast. A pilgrim's feast. Do you guys know of a feast in the end times? I don't know that this is it or not, but the first thing that comes to mind is the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's the first thing that comes to mind. Is it that? I'm not sure. <clears throat> Verse 8 says, He will swallow up death forever. Has that happened? 
No. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Does Israel get rebuked a lot? The day is coming when, when that will end, by the way. Okay. So as a result of his coming, uh, Isaiah says death will die and there will be no more sorrow. Okay. Chapter 26 is a prophecy of what God's people will praise him for on, the day, on that day in the land of Judah. That's verse one. It says the gates are open for the righteous nation to enter. Now, I think it's another reference to this uh, pilgrimage. You can't be talking about Israel at this point. It's talking about those outside, verse 2. It says, and at that time, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness, verse 9. How do they learn righteousness? If they have a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where they're learning the word of the Lord, that's where they would learn righteousness, verse 9. There is the judgment of the nations again, verse 10 through 14. The nation of Israel is restored, verse 15. And all the dead who died in faith will be resurrected, and they will join those who praise the Lord for his faithfulness at that time in the future. And remember, Isaiah says he will join them. We talked about that last week, verse 19. And then God's people at that time will be protected and preserved from the Lord's judgment that's coming upon the entire earth. Verse 20 through 21. He says, come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself as it were for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. We've got 10 things on the list. Most of them have been repeated multiple times. So let me go over them with you again. We have future restoration of national Israel. We have future redemption of ethnic Israel. A global, we we should say a global Gentile pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The judgment of all the nations. The return of Christ. The reign of Christ. Things reverting back to before the curse. The resurrection. The death of death. The preservation of Israel through judgment. Now those are... Uh, the eschatological biggies in Isaiah 1 through 26. Now the question is, in what order will they unravel in the future? So in, in what chronology will these things happen? I don't know. Not completely. Now if we consult uh, other places in scripture, uh, of course there would be more clarity, uh, but not perfect clarity, Okay. Now, apart from consulting other passages of Scripture, it seems to be um, a logical order as well. There's obviously more to what the Bible says about the order of things, but I think there's some logical order also. I would say both biblically and logically, Christ must return before he reigns on the throne of David, since it's earthly. If he is the one who judges the nations, he must come to do that. And it would be logical for him to protect and preserve ethnic Israel at that time. Christ is the one who establishes the throne and the kingdom, which are logical results of his reign. He's the one who teaches the nations, as Isaiah has told us. So the global pilgrimage must follow the establishment of his reign and the judgment of the nations. Now, I don't know uh, that he has to be present for the redemption of ethnic Israel, Uh, but it's going to take something big. 
like the judgment of the nations. Now, I probably say that because um, I've read Ezekiel 39, Matthew 24, Revelation 7, and all the other passages that deal with it. Uh, I, can't, I can't get out of my head what's there. Uh, the reverting of things back to precurse seems to be the product of his presence, okay? As well as the death of death and the resurrection. So here's my chronology of events. The redemption of ethnic Israel could be before or after his coming, okay? I, ha- I think it happens before, all right? Uh, he returns after they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Matthew 23, 39. So they come to faith, at least in my mind. Then Christ returns, at which time he judges the wicked, unbelieving world. Simultaneously, he preserves and protects believing ethnic Israel, after which he establishes the throne of David. And from there, he reestablishes the kingdom of David, which would be synonymous with the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. And then the nations of the earth will make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to learn the word of the Lord and celebrate with the king. And in fact, that's an ancient custom. Uh, After a king ascended the throne, uh, people would come celebrate, bring gifts from the surrounding nations. Now, the last three things um, I I can't place with any certainty. Uh, Sometime during his reign, uh, death will die uh, or be impossible a resurrection will occur, and to some degree, the curse will be reversed. I don't know exactly when they take place, okay? Now, some people say that most of these things happen uh, in what is called the eternal state, okay? That is, uh, with the new heavens and new earth and that sort of thing. I think that as we get further in Isaiah, that becomes an impossibility, okay? Uh, And so I hold the view that it happens during Christ's reign on the earth before the eternal state, okay? Uh, Now, of course, the new heavens and the new earth has not been mentioned yet in Isaiah. That's chapter 65 and 66. Um, As we get deeper into Isaiah, we'll we'll bring more uh, end times events together. Some of you are probably wondering, well, where's the rapture? Well, the rapture is uh, a musterion in the New Testament. It's a mystery, which means that it hadn't been revealed before. It's something that's new, okay? So we're not going to find the rapture in the Old Testament if that word means what it means in Koine Greek, and it does, so. Um, so I figured, with based upon where we stopped, uh, there's 66 books in Isaiah, we'll do this three times, and we're done with one. When we get uh, another 20 or 20-some chapters in, we'll look at all of the details, add them to what we have, and try to paint a clearer picture, and then one more time at the end. And then maybe at the end of Isaiah, we'll take all of the biblical data and just create a timeline from it the best we can. I'm not, I can't say that I know every detail and how they all fit. So, all right, if you have any questions about what I said, if you have any comments, uh, if you have disagreements, I welcome all of it. Uh, We can be mature and have a discussion about eschatology, so... There you have the data that I have, uh, and we'll go from there. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray.